do not concern yourself with what you get paid. Concern right. yourself with what you learn. Exactly. I was the writer, the photographer. I helped place the ads. I laid out the paper. I learned all that. I worked for six months for free. But I realized that just because you love something doesn't mean it has to be your job. That's right. That was a total accident if you go back to the day I met Maury. So I was actually going to drop the class. I guarantee you if I had done that, I would not be sitting here with you. That's exactly right. My entire life changed in that little minute and a half. Yeah. You put yourself in a place to take an opportunity. You kept showing up. And even when you heard a no, that no turns into the avenue. To people out there who've heard a lot of no's, what would you say to them? Today, my guest is the legendary author, Mitch Album. Maybe you have heard of Tuesdays with Maury. Maybe the five people you meet in heaven. And I could go on and on and on. What a story. The American dream is really alive and well with Mitch's personal story. We go deep into the early days of working for free, hearing the word no, and continuing to take opportunities as they presented themselves. It's inspiring. You're going to love it. Here is my conversation with Mitch Album. So Mitch, I would love to know if you can remember the time in your life when you had an affinity or you realized you liked reading or writing words in general. I'm just curious, was that a very early on thing or did it develop over time? Oh, I can tell you the moment that I realized that reading was important. Oh, I love it. I was a little kid, probably about seven. My mom used to take me to the library every Saturday morning, drop me off, and I'd spend two hours there, and then she would pick me up, and I was supposed to pick one book out. And on this particular Saturday, I had developed this affinity for submarines, so I was walking through the stacks, and I saw this book that had a submarine on the black sure. in the jacket and uh i pulled it off the shelf it was called Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea <laughs> so i go to the desk to check it out and i give it to the uh librarian she's this older woman and i um wasn't very big kid as you can imagine if you look at me now i'm not a very big adult <laughs> and she looked at me and said this book's too hard for you go pick out one from the children's section so i did what i was told got a book out of the children's section curious george Yes. Checked it out, came down the steps when my mom was waiting for me, got in the car, she starts to drive away, and as she drives away, she looks over and she says, Curious George, haven't you read that like a hundred times? And I said, yeah, but the librarian wouldn't let me take out the book I wanted to take out. She said, why not? I said, she said it was too hard for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Slams on the brakes, backs up, yanks me by the arm, runs me into the library, starts yelling at the librarian, did you tell my son a book was too hard for him? Never tell a child that a book is too hard for him. Oh. And never this child. Yeah. Where's the book? And the librarian's like, ba 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 And my mom just grabbed it. I think we stole the book, actually. I don't know if we even checked it out. But we went back home, and I took the book up to my bedroom. I opened it up, and, of course, it was way too hard for me. But I plowed through it because... I realized that this reading thing was so important that my mother, who wasn't a violent person, was ready to deck this librarian yeah. over it. And I always say that that was the moment that wow. I sort of fell in love with reading. And 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 I got through 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It took me a long time with a dictionary and everything like that. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've been re a reader and ever since. And you can't be a writer without being a reader. Isn't that so true? that's really when I became a writer, too. Yeah. So when did you start actually writing? 
That was late because I was a musician. Yeah. And so I never really thought about writing uh, because everything that was creative in me that was a storytelling kind of thing came out of music. And I really didn't write anything through high school or college. I never Lyrics, wrote though? Lyrics. Of course. But I never wrote for my right. school newspaper right. or anything like that. And I was a musician out of school for several years. And then um, only when kind of a, things weren't going great in music and I... I happened to be in a supermarket uh, during the day because I worked at night, you know, as a musician and all that. And they, the local little newspaper that they throw into your basket as you, you know, go out, um, had a little ad on the front saying, if you have spare time, we could use some help with the newspaper. And seeing as I had nothing but spare time back then as a musician, I went over and I was like the youngest person by 50 years in the office. But they assigned me that night an assignment to write about... Um, a parking meter raise at a meeting, you know, of parking meter people, whatever it was. And I'd <laughs> never written anything in my life, but I read, I, I'd, I'd seen the movie, All the President's Men. That right. was it. Okay. So I got a notepad and I got a pen and I just started asking a bunch of questions. And then when I sat down to write the story, you know, I guess I had read a lot of newspapers in my life and I just sort of knew how the stories work. The first paragraph kind of sums up everything. Sure. Second paragraph is a quote. Third paragraph kind of elaborates. So I wrote that and the next week I came back to the supermarket and they threw another one of these things in my basket and I looked at it and there was my story on the bottom of the front page and I had my name on it and I got that little tingle that yeah, you get when sure. you create something and there's credit given and you know I fell in love with writing and I moved out of music uh, you know because I, I wanted something that was creative but has a little more structure to it and you know maybe hard work would pay off a little bit better and I never gave up on music. I love music, but I, I started to write, and one yeah. thing led to another. So was it just piano or other instruments? Piano was my main thing. I played a lot of instruments. I played guitar, played right. drums, played bass, played you know little right. saxophone, stuff like that. But I just love music in general, right. and um, you know I was blessed to have some ability in it. And But I realized that just because you love something doesn't mean it has to be your job. That's right. And I've had much more success as a musician right once i got out of music right than i ever did when i was making it my living <laughs> i had funny. songs recorded on albums and you know warren oh, sure. zevon recorded one of my songs i have songs in movies but only after i was a writer of course who was just dabbling in music of course when it was my full-time thing yeah didn't work so the the timeline here is fascinating to me because this is a show about encouraging people to discover who they really are see their potential and go get it so uh you're you're at brandeis where in this story, because then you go get two graduate degrees. Mm. So in that story you just shared, where's the writing come in where you write that first article and then you walk away from music? In between college and graduate school. Okay. So Brandeis, I was a musician the whole right. time. That's where I met Maury. Right. Tuesdays with Maury and yes. Maury Schwartz. Who Maury just said to me, if you love music, go for it. Become sure. a musician. Of course, my parents were at home saying, music is a waste of time. Do not do music. <laughs> you should go to law school or something like that. And then I was a musician in between, and then I started to write. And after I, I, I worked for that newspaper um, for six months without ever getting paid. Which really? Is something I encourage people to do all the time. Yes. I always say when young people say, you know, well, what should I do when it's my first job starting out? I say, first of all, do not concern yourself with what you get paid. Concern right. yourself with what you learn. Exactly. And I learned everything there because it was a small paper. Sure. I was the writer, the photographer. I helped place the ads. I laid out the paper. I learned all that. I worked for six months for free. And then they said, after six months, they said, well, we should probably give you something. How's $25 a week? 
And I said, great, I'll take it. You know, <laughs> of course. With 25, when you're making nothing, 25 is a lot. It's huge. And um, as a result of that work, I had clips, and I was able to apply to graduate school at Columbia Journalism sure. School, which is a really good school. Yeah. And it was by virtue of the fact that I worked at that place. Much of what I sent in was stuff that I didn't get paid for, but it got me got into, into school. graduate school, and uh, I took off from there. So I'm curious, how does a uh, musician... Uh, get into sports writing? Was it sometime? Well, another accident. Yeah. You know, I'm a I'm a big believer in that John Lennon quote about life is what happens to you when you're busy making plans. Yeah. You know, so I, um, when I got out of graduate school, I, I, I while I was in graduate school, Columbia, I needed money to help pay for tuition. They had a little job board. One of the jobs in the job board was at Sport Magazine. So I called them up and I got it. I wasn't particularly interested in sports. You know, I was yeah, I liked them as a kid and I played them as a kid, but it could have been sewing magazine. I would have taken of course. That. <laughs> so I had a bunch of clips from sport magazine when it was time for me to apply to a job. Now I did not want to be a sports writer. There was a job that was posted in uh, editor and publisher magazine, which I don't even know is in existence anymore, but that's how you used to get jobs. And it was for a feature magazine writer. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to write feature stories, long magazines for the you know Sunday magazine piece. So I got all my clips together and I sent them off expecting to get this or hoping to get this job as a feature writer. Well, months pass and I, nothing happens. So I get an assignment to go to Finland for track and field news to cover the World Track and Field Championships in Helsinki, Finland. I only wow. mention this because while I'm in Finland, my phone rings in this dumpy little hotel room that I was in and I pick it up and it's scratchy voice like that and I hear, uh, is this Mitch album? I said, yeah. And this is Fred Turner. I'm the sports editor of uh, the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel. I said, okay. <laughs> he says, you know that uh, Sunday magazine writer job you applied for? I said, yeah. You didn't get it. I said, okay. <laughs> You're calling me all the way over in Finland to tell me that I didn't get a job? Yeah. He said, well, the guy who was interviewing for that, he, he saw you had a lot of sports clips, so he brought them over to me, and I read them, and you're pretty good at sports. If you want a job in sports writing, I got one for you. And I ended up flying home. I went no down, way. met him, took the job, and I was in sports ever since. It was a total accident. If that guy hadn't walked my clips over to that man, I probably wouldn't be sitting with you right now. You wow. Know? So I always say, you know, uh, life turns on a, on a, on a moment. And it uh, does. you never know when those moments come. It does, but I think, I think for the audience here, I want to make sure you don't miss this. Uh, and Mitch, you're kind of saying, well, you know, it, it was kind of luck or whatever. But you started writing when you had no experience, you took an opportunity, you were worked for free, which if you say that in today's world, Gen Z will go nuts on yeah, TikTok. Really. Like you're like, it's a human rights abuse. They don't <laughs> get it. And I don't want to sound like the old guy. Uh -uh. So I'm not going to go on a rant. I'm raising three Gen Z. However, you put yourself in a place to take an opportunity. You kept showing up. And even when you heard a no, that no turns into the avenue Right. That changes your life, and may I say, millions of other people, because of the books that you've written. It's pretty, I, you know. You just look back on it, and it, and it, it is luck, but only luck because you put yourself out there. Yeah, you stepped well, into it. I think there's a big lesson there. Yeah, you have to seize the opportunities that are accidentally given to you. Yes, you know. Uh, so you can't seize the accidents. Right. Uh, but opportunities come, and you. I'll tell you another one. Uh, Tuesdays with Maury is probably the book I'm most well known for, right? By far. And, uh, 
that was a total accident. If you go back to the day I met Maury, I was a freshman at the uh, Brandeis University. I'd signed up for his class ahead of time, didn't know anything about him or anything. Else. And I walked into the room and there were nine kids in the room. And I said to myself, this is way too small a class. If mm. I cut it, they'll know I'm not here. You know, I wanted one of those 400 people <laughs> sure. rooms so I could sleep in. So I was actually going to drop the class because, you know, you can go to the registrar's office and drop the class. Sure. So I was leaving the room to drop the class when Maury, the professor, who I didn't even know who he was, started to call roll. And one of the problems when your last name begins with A is that you can't get out That's quick right. enough. And he, I heard him call Mitchell Album. Now, I was already in the doorway going to drop the class, and he didn't know it was me. So I could have kept walking, gone to drop the class. I guarantee you if I had done that, I would not be sitting here with you That's exactly right. But because I felt kind of guilty, wow. I slid back in and I said, here. And he said, is it Mitch or Mitchell? Which do you prefer? And I was like taken aback. The teachers never ask you that. And I said, uh, well, Mitch, my friends call me Mitch. And he said, Mitch, it is. And Mitch, I said, yeah. He said, I hope one day you'll think of me as your friend. Wow. And so I knew cutting the class was out of the question. That's right. <laughs> but also um, that began this amazing relationship. And all that happened in the span of about a minute and a half. My entire life changed in that little minute and a half. Yeah. But you had to seize the opportunity, you know, just because sure. I ended up there. You know, there are many things that happened before I wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury. But it wouldn't have happened if not for that little confidence. It's crazy. And then, so you're in Fort Lauderdale. I want to get back to this, the timeline. How long before you get the opportunity to go to the Detroit Free Press? Two years. Two years. Two years. I'll tell you another thing, since this is a money-oriented or, you know, career sure. oriented. Yeah. I had gone to the people in Fort Lauderdale. They had just made me a, co a columnist. But they made me a columnist and did not change my pay. And the columnist job, I was the lead columnist. That was a pretty important position. And I thought, you should get some kind of a raise. So my boss said to me, the same guy who would call me on the phone, said, hey, you want the job? Whatever. He's a nice guy, great guy. I said, listen, you got that. Ah, they don't have any money. Just don't have any money to give you, you know, but they're giving you the job. I said, but there should be some kind of recognition that I don't feel like it's any different than what yeah. I did before if I get the same salary. How about, could you just give me $1,000 a year more? If you give me 1000 he goes, he says, well, I'll go. Look, he comes back. He says, ah, they don't want to give you any more money because they're afraid that, uh, you know, you might take off. You might leave. I said, I'll tell you what. If you give me $1,000 a year more, I'll sign a contract that says I won't leave, can't, can't leave for two or three more years. He said, I'll ask him, ask him. He goes, he says, nah, they don't want to do it. So I, I took the, you know, did the job. They didn't give me the $1,000. Two months later, I got a call from Detroit wow. offering me the job up in Detroit, and I left. And I said to him, you should have given me the $1,000. That's right. You had me locked <laughs> you know, up. For I wouldn't have been three. able to go. <laughs> yeah. We always, we've laughed story. about that. Many, we laughed about it many times over the years. He's no longer with us. but Yeah. Uh, oh, I love that. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Don't we all need help being better? And they're great at it. You know, we all carry around a lot of stress from our family life and our professional life, and it can just hit us at the same time. Big stuff, small stuff. And we can talk to our friends, or maybe you have a great relationship with a leader at work or a coworker, but you may not feel comfortable telling them everything. I know I wouldn't. And when we keep things bottled up, it will eventually leak out, and it's really negative. But therapy, it's a safe space to get everything off your chest with an unbiased professional and figure out how to work through the stuff that's weighing you down. So if you've thought of therapy before, you're thinking about it now, please try BetterHelp. 
Therapy isn't just for people who've gone through trauma. It's great to build skills, to become better personally and professionally. And BetterHelp is flexible enough to fit your busy schedule because it's completely online. All you do is fill out a short questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no extra cost. It's time to get stuff off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ken today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ken. By the way, I, the, when you did the impersonation of him telling the first part of the story, calls you in Finland, it felt, it's just like a guy that was probably at the horse race track when he called it's you. It's pretty much what he sounded like. Yeah, uh, yeah that's Fred. pretty great. He was from Boston. He had that Boston <laughs> accent, you know, and he had that, kind of, that gruff kind of voice. Sports, sports writing is full of those kind of guys. I love it. So you get to Detroit. Yeah. And if I've got my my research done right, the very first sports-related book, it may have been your first book, is, was it on Bo Schimbeckler? That's right. Getting to know him. I mean, the title of the book is Life, Laughs, and the Lessons of a College Football Legend. I think it's pretty amazing. He, that's one big-time sports guy I didn't get a chance to meet and interview, and I've been blessed to interview a lot of big names. I just have to ask, I mean, you've been around the, the program and that experience with him. What kind of guy was he? Bo was uh, the kind of quintessential old-fashioned football coach in that everything football he knew, remembered, all that, and anything else in life was useless to him. <laughs> useless. <laughs> That's great. So when I tried to write a book with him, it was supposed to be an autobiography right. that I was as told to. Uh-huh. I had to interview 100 people. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. 100 people to tell me his life that he didn't remember. Now, I could have said to him, I remember talking to him once about the first game he ever coached. Oh, yeah, you know, Bowling Green or whatever it was, you know, Miami of Ohio, you know. Right. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, we won 14 to 7, you know, and the third quarter we threw this pass 21. I said, well, how did, how, did you, how did you feel when you won your first game? He looks at me blankly. Yeah. What do you mean? I said, how'd you feel? You must have, I mean, you know, what was it like to win your first? How the hell should I remember what I felt right. like? I said, you just remembered what, what passed you through on third down and right. 17, you know. He, everything was just football for him. And wow. um, he he was, he, he dodged me constantly uh, to talk about it. He kept saying, this book is going to be terrible. I don't know why I ever <laughs> agreed to this idea. One time I had to chase him down in the locker room and after the Iowa game because he had broken like three appointments with me. And we had this deadline coming up and he wouldn't meet, you know, we kept saying, I'll do it later. So I follow him in the locker room. And now that I look back, it was kind of funny because the players had all left and he was, he was in the shower. He goes in the shower. I'm like standing outside the shower door and going, you have to keep your appointments. If you want to do this, you have to keep his appointments. I don't just, God, beep, 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 beep. And, and he's got a towel around him. He's butt naked, but he's got this towel. And, he, and, and, and finally he says, hey, we won the game, you know. And, and I realized he was angry because I didn't congratulate him right. on winning the game. 100%. I said, congratulations on winning the game. Now will you keep your appointments? So it's this contentious kind yeah. of thing, a love-hate kind of thing, because he did sort of love me. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, when I wrote, started writing the book, we were flying to um, uh, the Naval Academy. He was going to give a speech, and I had written the chapter on him and Woody Hayes. Oh, wow. Now, Woody Hayes was his coach, his yeah. mentor. Sure. I mean, the guy he looked up to most in life. And eventually, they became rivals at coaches at different, you know, Ohio State and Michigan, and they had a 10-year war, they oh, called yeah. it, you know, Famous. where they would fa you know, face each other every year. And 
Bo had told me the story about the last time he had seen Woody after he had been fired for hitting hitting the hitting the kid you know on the field, and he was not, he was a shell of himself, just like Bo would have been without football. You know, once sure. you take football away, and um, had told me about him dying and all that. So I wrote this chapter, and I gave it to him on the plane, and I said, "Here, read this. Tell me what you think." Now I'm sitting next to him, tight compartment. He puts on his reading glass. He starts reading. And he licks his finger and he takes a page and puts it around the back. And he licks his finger, takes his page. And I, it's excruciating. Of You're course. sitting next to this coach. He's reading about himself and his mentor. I can't tell anything about what he likes it, not sure. or whatever. He's reading, he's reading. Finally, he gets to the last page and he takes off his glasses and he wipes a tear away from wow. his eye. He goes, outstanding. <laughs> like that. And I'm telling you, yeah. When a guy like that does that, you know what those players mean when they say they would go through a wall for him. Yeah. Because he just had that kind of Patton-esque sort of inspirational yes. kind of thing. And um, he was a, a, a joy, especially as he got older. Uh, after he retired, yeah. we became much friendlier. Right. You know, and I'm very glad that I knew him, but it was the last time I ever wrote a book with an athlete uh, or coach because yeah. when you need 100 people to remind you of your own life because right. <laughs> you can't remember it. Yeah. Um, that's too, that's, that's hard too work. big an ask. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad this is a great transition. I want to talk about the novelist, you know, of course you and Maury, that's, that's real. Right. Uh, but then, you know, you've now moved into the novel side of things. We're going to talk about the new one here shortly. There are a lot of creatives that are, could get some great advice from you, you know, whether it be songwriting or writing uh, on any genre level, uh, thoughts that you would give someone who maybe new into the craft yeah, and, and understanding how very difficult it is to be a good writer. I'd have to get Mitch Album's thoughts. So what would well, you say to that new writer? First of all, you have to believe in yourself and believe that you, you know, your storytelling is, is, is worth hearing because when I went around trying to find a publisher for Tuesdays with Maury, nobody wanted to publish it. Everybody told me boring, you're a sports writer, it's depressing. And I was only trying to pay Maury's medical bills. Right. So I wasn't asking for, I said, here's the bills, just give me enough money to pay his bills, that's it. Right. No, boy, one guy told me, you don't even know what it means to write a memoir, come back in 20 years. You know, and Tuesdays with Maury's now the best-selling memoir of all time. 40 plus million copies but, and counting for context. But he context. told me, you know, don't, you don't even know what a memoir is. <laughs> so first of all, you have to believe in your own writing. And then when it came time to do a next book, Tuesdays with Maury. I'd never written fiction before, but I thought about it, and everybody only wanted me to write Wednesdays with Maury and Chicken Soup with Maury and all because it was had sure. become so successful. And I said, I can't do that. Uh, that's not honorable. You know, I wrote, I said everything I have to say about my experience with Maury, and I'm not going to turn it into a cottage industry. And I realized very quickly that everybody had all these eyes on me, but what's the next subject that he's going to choose in a nonfiction book? And it would pale in comparison. So I said, you know what? I think I'm going to go another route, and I'm just going to write a novel. Oh, my God, what a stupid idea. That's what right. everybody said. Right. All these same publishers, no, nobody wants a novel from you. Every every nonfiction writer thinks he can write a novel. And I said, but you told me you didn't want to. I said, Maury, either. So before I even sat down to write anything fictional, I had to have a, a, a deep belief yeah. that I could do it. Yeah. And you have to, in order to do that, you have to believe in your storytelling. But I, I'd always been a, a pretty decent storyteller. That was my one talent as a, as a kid, as a teenager, whatever. I could always tell a story. I could sit and tell stories uh, at camp 
They would ask me to tell the story and them the, around the campfire, the scary right. story. You sure. know, tell the ghost story. Yeah. Tell Mitch, make Mitch tell it. You know, I knew how to like lead up to the punchline. And so um, I sat down to do a book called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Yeah. And I had an idea about, based on an uncle of mine who had had a, one of those near-death experiences on an operating table and said that he had lifted up into the air and had looked down on this yeah. table and saw all his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of the bed. And, uh, of course, I said to him, you know, what'd you do? And he was an old World War II vet and a gritty kind of guy. So what I do? I told him, get the heck out of here. I'm not ready for any of you yet. And apparently he <laughs> scared them right back to heaven because he went back in his body and he lived another 10 years. Yeah. So I had the idea, what if, you know, you go to heaven uh, and you meet people from your life, but they're not your relatives. Yeah. What if they're, some of them might be your relatives, but some of them are just people you had a five-minute encounter with. But that changed their life forever and changed your life forever. And you, by virtue of meeting those people, you would realize how your life had impacted people on earth, a little bit like Jimmy Stewart sure. in It's a Wonderful Life. And I put this novel together. And, um, you know, what's, what's, what's funny about it is that uh, most of the people, again, did not want this novel. And I finally went to this one publisher and I sat in a circle of people, uh, all women and one man. The man, man ran the company and the rest were all people who worked at the company, editors, things like that. I told them this story about this man who goes to heaven, who saves this little girl uh, from, uh, at an amusement park. He, he pushes her out of the way. Um, just as a cart falls and hits him and kills him, and he can't remember, did he save the little girl? And I oh. tell the story in this room, and at the very end, I say, um, he meets a little girl in heaven who he asked, did I save the little girl down there? And, 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 and she shakes, did I push her out of the way? And she shakes her head no, and he's brokenhearted. He, he, means he was a failure. And she, she, she says, you pulled her. And he said, no, 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 I, I felt hands. How could I could have put... And she said, those were my hands and I was bringing you to heaven. Oh, yes. And when I said that line, a woman in the room burst into tears. Oh. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, when I left the room, I said to my literary agent, because they said, we want this book. We don't want any nonfiction books. We want this book. And so when I left the room, I said to my literary agent, all right, two things. Number one, we're going to go with them because they're not asking me to write a nonfiction book or Wednesdays right. with Maury, whatever they want this book. And number two, whoever that woman was who burst into tears, I want her to be my editor. Wow. I didn't know who she was, didn't know her name, didn't know everything, and that's what happened. And yeah. she became my editor for two, for five people you meet in heaven and, and four more books that came yeah. after it. She got it. Yeah. And that's she the key. Got it. Okay, so I... The, the nose that you had, that you've just outlined for us, I don't think that's exclusive to Mitch Album. I think that happens more often than we realize. Hey, high school seniors and parents of high school seniors, it's almost graduation time. And if you're not sure about next steps, I want you to listen to this. Coding skills are essential in today's workforce. And my friends at Bethel Tech can help you start a new career really fast and do it cheap. It only takes nine months to complete a Bethel Tech course in UI, UX design, full stack development, data science, or cybersecurity. And your young person can get over a thousand hours of experience in a collaborative environment and then get placed. The average starting salary for a junior developer is $66,000. And the field is projected to grow by 22% over the next five years. Software development is a career with an enormously bright future. And right now, Bethel Tech is offering you 
10% off if you watch or listen to the Ken Coleman Show and you pay cash. So go to Bethletech.net slash Ken Coleman. Bethletech.net slash Ken Coleman right now for details. Terms and conditions do apply. What's the key to, to, to staying with it when you hear the no's? Nobody wanted Tuesdays with Maury. You kind of went through the same thing. I think a lot of people hear no. And just because of the life I've been able to lead professionally and talk to, to men and women who've done great things, there's just something about they stay with it. They, they get down like everybody else. You're not different than anybody else. You have real emotions. Uh, but to people out there who've heard a lot of no's, what, what would you say to them? Well, I don't want to say to people, if a, a thousand people tell you no, yeah, there's ignore some, them. Yeah, there's because there's something there too. Right. So I always say, look behind the no and say, why are they saying no? Yep. And if the reason they're saying no is they're afraid, for example, the movie business is very much like that. Sure. When you go in to try to pitch a movie, I've done this millions of times. They say no because they don't want to be the person who takes the chance on something new because they don't want to get fired. That's right. So I never take a no in Hollywood as a negative because I know most of the no's are just, I'm saving my job. Just bring me something that looks like the movie that we just made a minute ago. Right. And I can say yes to that because no one can blame me for saying yes to that. So that's a no that you should ignore. That's good. But if there are a thousand no's that say, you know, a million people have tried this and they've gone off that cliff and they died, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should not go off that cliff. That's right. You know, like that's a right. barrel over Niagara Falls, not a good idea, you know? So, so, but, but you also have to have enough confidence in yourself to say, okay, can I live with, uh, I guess it's, I, I would put it this way. Can I? I live with not doing what I want to do and accept that those people talk me out of it. That's really In my good. case, I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't live with the nose about you can't write a novel because yeah. I so wanted to prove that I could. Right. And if I accepted that, there would be a burning inside of me for the rest of my life that I yes. shouldn't have let those people tell me no. Yeah. And if that's your litmus test, then you should do, you should stick with your own heart and do what you want yeah. to do. And just to, to put a cap on that, by the way, that's really deep, folks. Rewind that, listen to that again. You know, in today's world, you can self-publish, and at least you get it out. There's no yeah. guarantee that's going to be a wild success, but you shouldn't be doing it. You didn't write Tuesdays with Maury to sell 40 million copies. You can't even you can't even fathom that idea. It was such a labor of love yeah. and uh, that it was just to pay his medical bills. And, yes. and uh, I remember... Um, planning to go back to sports writing after it was done. Right. And I asked my literary agent, I said, do you think this is going to hurt my sports writing? Right. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's kind of a, you know emotional book and really not very tough. And I think athletes are going to go, you know, uh, ha ha, I read that book. You cried at the end, you know, you're yeah. watching. And he said, I wouldn't worry about it. Nobody's going to read it. That was my literary agent. It's a it's unbelievable, yeah. isn't so it? So it's like they only printed twenty thousand copies. Ken. Yeah. I mean twenty thousand total for the world, right? And I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car the rest of my life. You know, giving something? them out to people. It's amazing. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the creative process. So I love the the first nugget was great. You got to believe in yourself. Um, your creative process when you got that idea or any idea. We're going to talk about the new book. Uh, you do you do you visualize it and just jot down the basic idea? Okay, my uncle's story. Uh, would there be three people, five people? Yeah. How much of that is happening before you sit down to then begin to write? Right. How much of it is happening 
just as a result of I'm going to sit and begin to let my brain bleed on the right. paper or my heart bleed on the paper. So once again, with writing, there are many different ways to do it. And I know a lot of talented writers that do it completely different. Sure. Uh, for me, uh, I like to know where I'm going. Right. So I like to know the ending. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't need to, I don't need to know the middle. I kind of want to know the beginning, but I definitely want to know the ending. Okay. Because for me, my books are largely about, you know, they're novels and they're fiction, but they, they have a lesson. Yeah. There's something inspiration you want to take from them. So I want to know what that lesson is. I want to know kind of what the point of writing this book is going to be. With the five people you meet in heaven, I wanted to write a story that proved that there's no such thing as a nobody, yeah. that everybody touches somebody, everybody's right. life touches somebody. So if you have that, you can sail towards that. With Stranger in the Lifeboat, the most recent book before this this current one, uh, it was about 10 people stranded in a boat that, that blew up and, and they pull a guy into the boat, a stranger who's floating in the water, and he says he's God. And they have to decide if they believe him. The point of that book was, you know, will you believe in help when it shows up in front of you, even if it doesn't look like the help that you expect in life, you know, and I sailed towards that. So I need a kind of North star right. to sail towards. Otherwise you can get very mixed up on your journey. Mm -hmm. You can go left and right and, and, and you write 10,000 pages and you still don't have a book. Um, so for me, that's what I do. And then I find a voice, which is kind of unique to book writing, but, you know, I think you could almost say the same thing for film in a certain way, and even in songwriting. You, who's going to tell the story? Is it going to be uh, the first person? Is it going to be a very personal account? If so, that character better be damn interesting because yeah. you're going to be with it the whole book. Is it going to be a, a you know a, a, an, uh, a passive narrator? Is it going to be told in some other voice? In the new book, The Little Liar, Truth is the narrator. And it begins essentially by saying you can trust the book you're about to read. You can trust it because I'm the only thing in this world you can trust. Yes. I am truth. truth. Yeah. So now you know, wow, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm having a book essentially read to me by a virtue. You yes. Know? So that's different. And then you, your whole book has to kind of stay in that voice. And I think the difference between amateurs and, and professionals in writing, you know, people who've come along is, is you can see voices changed around in the course of the book. And 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 the really good ones keep that voice from the very first page to the end and it's like a friend kind of walking you through the story but yeah. you're familiar with it. I love this and so the the be all end all here for the reader is is what really understanding truth trusting truth of the little liar you mean the yeah, point this, of the little yeah, the liar book, yeah. yeah well to understand that truth is precious and that when we break it we break a lot of things yeah. uh, and a lot of people and it revolves around this one terrible lie that a little boy who's never lied before is tricked into telling and the ramifications of that lie for 40 years yeah. uh, on all kinds of people well and I, and I want to cover this I want you to tell us because when you sit down I love the creative process we've been talking about so you get an idea because this takes on uh, uh, a, a very very uh, sensitive uh topic in mm -hmm. today's world it's gotten more and more sensitive more controversial whatever label you want to put on it but a very uh real moment in history that yeah. is very personal to you yeah. so i don't want to steal the thunder i want you to set it up how this idea come to you yeah well i had heard a similar story uh many years ago at a holocaust museum um about how the nazis would trick jewish people 
into getting on the trains that would take them to the concentration camps yeah. by getting other Jewish people to lie to them mm. about where they were going. So I created a story about an 11-year-old boy uh, who is in love with a 12-year-old girl in this little city in Greece, and the Nazis invade, and they find out that this 11-year-old boy has never told a lie in his life. And in his whole community, he's known as as Snow, they call him, because he's so pure, he's I never told it. a lie. So they decide to use him as a weapon. And they kidnap him from his family, and they say, you can go back to your family in a couple weeks. All you have to do is just help us every day go stand on these train platforms and tell the people who are going to be kind of confused, tell them that they're going to good homes and good jobs, and everything's going to be fine, and, and they're going to be happy to hear it, and then you can go back to your family. And thinking that he's telling the truth because he's never told a lie and he doesn't really recognize lies. He does this every day until the very last day when mm. he sees his own family and this little girl being shoved into a boxcar and he screams to go with them and the Nazi pulls him away and that's when he finds out that these trains are actually going to Auschwitz and, and, and the concentration camps and he's not allowed to go. And the book follows him, his, his name is Nico, uh, for the next 40 years as he tries desperately to find his family again and then loses the ability to speak the truth because that one lie that he was tricked into haunts him so much that he can't, the truth won't come out of his mouth anymore. So he becomes this pathological liar. Uh, he, he takes on different identities. He travels and goes to different countries, different passports. He eventually comes to America and as often happens with pathological liars he becomes immensely successful yeah he becomes a mil billionaire you know uh, uh out in hollywood but he he he's trying to be forgiven his whole life for what he did mm. and meanwhile the little girl who was always in love with him she survives the war and the nazis and the holocaust and she spends her life trying to find him again mm. to forgive him so it's a it's a story that asks what's the biggest lie you've ever told in your life and what would you do to be forgiven that lie. Mm. How important is that to you? And it takes on the whole concept of, you know, truth and lying, but told by the voice of truth, which was really an interesting voice to write in because many times during that horrific period, and I dare say that a lot of it is being paralleled right now in our time. No question. You know, where these accusations and the anti-Semitism and all that, and, and, and truth is able to say, look what you did to me. Mm -hmm. Look at, look at, the things you destroyed by destroying me. How could you do this? I'm a virtue. You know, mm -hmm. why do you do this to me? Why do you pick a sliver of truth here and a sliver of truth there and, and ignore all the rest of it? And so I didn't know it was going to be this timely a book, but it has proven to be, you know, most of the people who have read it, who have, who have, who have positively reacted to it have said, boy, this really came at an appropriate time. It really you know? is. And I, I didn't know, but, but I'm happy that it did. I, I, I think the follow-up question here has to be uh, as you take on the voice of truth in this book and you hear things it's now become a thing and, I, and, and sadly it's mostly on social media but people are saying this in everyday right. life right. this idea of my truth and right. my truth and, and I'm just curious a guy who takes on a topic like truth who takes tr the narrative of the voice of truth when you hear that phrase uh, the I relativism wince. Yeah, like what does that do to you? What do you think about this well, idea of my truth and it's my truth and it's, yeah. well, wait, is it such a thing or is no, it just truth? I, I think what people 
I think it just reflects a time where we are so narcissistic that we really think our story is the only story that there is. And I think what most people well mean said. by my truth is my story. That's right. And unfortunately, we've come to a point in the world where my story seems to be the most important thing that can matter. And yes. as long as you're true to your story, you don't have to concern yourself with other people or how you treat other people, whatever. And that's, we're in this world together. We're not in this world as a bunch of individual stories. So there isn't my truth and your truth. There's the truth. Yes. And then there's the experience that you've had with the truth. Your experience is going to differ than mine. Uh, but I, I think people, it's just a phrase that I think it's unfortunate the way that, because people have the right to their story, but they don't have the right to say, you know, your world doesn't exist because it's not part of my truth. You know, I, I see this going to Haiti every month. You know, I, I, I couldn't be more different than the kids at our orphanage. I mean, I'm white and I'm American and I, I come from all, you know, I've had so many opportunities and, 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 and they're Haitian and they're, they're, they're happy to have water or, 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 or something to eat, you know, and we couldn't, we couldn't be at different crossroads, but what's true to them is true to me, yeah. you know, that we have to help one another mm. and we need one another. And, and I don't say, well, you know, I understand their background and my background, but that's not really what's important. What's important is what can we do for one another? How can we make the world better together? What can I do to help? And I think when you are oriented like that, you don't really sit around and spend a lot of time on who's my truth or yeah. somebody else's truth. Yeah. Well, you and your wife have been very, very generous uh, with your success. You guys really model this uh, incredibly. just not just in Haiti. Uh, but I'm just curious, in a country where I have been blessed to go see, there's tremendous destruction. I think we read about it in the news, but we really don't have a great understanding unless you've been there. You understand it very, very well. Some of the winds coming out of the orphanage, share some of the winds and, and things that you're encouraged by, because that's a tough, tough uh, uh, operation, yeah. uh, for lack of a better yeah. word. Well, I'll tell you the youngest, and I'll tell you the oldest. So um, the oldest... Uh, was a, a boy when we got there who was uh, about maybe 12 years old, 11 years old. And uh, he was very quiet and very studious. And uh, he would do homework under a single light bulb when we had power, because you only get electricity about four or five That's hours right. a day there. Yeah. When we had power, he'd sit under a light bulb and do his homework on his lap. And his pencil would puncture the paper because, you know, it's a lap is not, you know, it's not a desk. And uh, he kept going to school, kept going to school, and he eventually became a first graduate, our first graduate, and got into college and at America and got a scholarship. And we took him to college, and we walked him into his dorm room, uh, and he looked around the dorm room, typical small little dorm room, you know, <clears throat> bed here, bed there, you know, radiator in the middle, and there was a desk. And he said, is that my desk? Mm. And I said, yeah. He's, and he started to tear up. He said, all my life, I've just, I've wished I could have my own desk. Mm. And he has his own desk. And that kid had a 4.0 average in college and is now medical school. Oh, that's amazing. So oh, that's wow. the oldest. That's the oldest. And wow. the youngest is a little girl who was brought to us last year at six months of age. And she weighed seven pounds. Mm. She had had apparently nothing to eat in her life but sugar water. And she couldn't open her eyes because of conjunctivitis, severe conjunctivitis. She couldn't move or walk or talk or anything like that. Mm. So we were able to 
get a visa quickly for her thanks to some connections we've established down there. And we brought her to America trying to save her life and put her on some kind of nutrition program. And the doctors here were so flummoxed by what they saw that when we asked them, you know, well, what's the prognosis? They said, we don't see children who haven't eaten anything in six months. We don't know what to tell you. Uh, mm. Just pray mm. and feed her, Yeah, you know? And my wife and I have found that food and love conquer a lot of things. <laughs> That's Maybe beautiful. not in that order. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and she blossomed and developed. I remember the day we took her to the doctor about six months later where she finally showed up on a growth chart because she was so below sure. size-wise. He wow. kept saying, well, she's not there yet. And he, he said, I got great news. She's in the bottom 2% of growth. <laughs> right. And we were like, yes, she, she made charted. the chart. She yeah. charted. Yeah. <laughs> and she now just celebrated her second birthday. Oh. And she she's lives with us. I mean, we kept thinking we were going to bring her back to Haiti, but it's impossible. She's become such a big of part course. of our life. And she's brilliant. And she was walking around the, the house yesterday with a toy phone. And she said, Dada, Dada, hello, Dada. And I, so I picked up my phone and I said, hello, Nadi. And she said, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> and, I, I, you know, we laugh about that because we remember when she fit in our hand and was inert. Um, so that's the youngest. He's the oldest. And in between, there are many, many other mm. wonderful stories that just make you feel lucky to be on this earth and to have some kind of part in yeah. watching children develop. Do you uh, do you receive volunteers, donations? How could people who may be yeah. touched by this story get connected to what Both. you're doing? Um, very easy. Uh, have Faith Haiti is the name of the mission, and it's havefaithhaiti.org on the web. And we take volunteers. We've had volunteers who have come down for two months and stayed for four years. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and, of course, we take donations. It takes a lot of money to run. We have 65 kids at, at any given time we don't adopt any of them out uh, first of all i wouldn't know how to do that and yeah. and secondly i feel like it was hard enough for them to be given up once at some point in their life i agree i don't want them to fear you yeah. know or, or or shop themselves to a, someone who might come looking for them yeah. uh, you know i let them have a home and our place is a home and it will always be their home and and um they have one another and it's amazing ken to watch when a new child comes in mm. and there's that moment where whoever bought them in kind of disappears and you see the child will look up from playing and realize like whoever it was an uncle a grandparent, parent whoever um they're gone and they'll start to kind of like walk towards the entrance and an older kid will go over and put their arm around them and turn them around and lead mm. them back in wow. plus they've all gone through that of experience course themselves wow um it's an amazing family of 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 children and um We'd be happy to have anybody yeah. help us. So havefaithhaiti.org is how yeah. we do it. You know, it would be my hope that uh, ministries or charities, uh, orphanages like what you're doing, there's others there, that it is the future of Haiti that finally turns that country around. It's yeah. just such a corrupt leadership culture, and it's like giving these kids a second chance at life may be the thing that actually gives that country a second we chance. We have a goal that one of our kids one day will be president of that yes, country. Yes, that's my hope. And uh, when they say to him, well, what privilege did you have that you got to this thing? They'll say, you know, I grew up at an orphanage, yeah. and and it's right over there, yeah. you know. And, yeah. um, and I always say to the kids, your job is to put us out of business. Yeah. So go do it. 
Well, I love it, folks. He's a great writer, but he also is a great man and uh, has a great wife. They have a great personal story. If you don't know, dive into it more. We didn't have time to cover all that. Uh, But the book is The Little Liar. Uh, I highly recommend anything that Mitch has written. Uh, I've been reading his stuff for as long as I can remember, probably a high school kid. Mm. First time I read an article in the Detroit Free Press because my parents are from Michigan and I was the Southern kid who needed some some good writing on my favorite team, the Michigan Wolverines, the Detroit Tigers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's when I first met you was in the old school newspapers um, that my, my, my uncle would send when a big sporting event, like if something big happened, he would send a copy of the Detroit Free Press sports section so that I could save it. And uh, you were on those pages. So it's, it's, it's always been an honor. Second time I've been able to have a conversation with you. I know you're busy. You got a lot going on, but I know that I'm better and our audience is better for it. So thank you, Mitch. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Ken. Thank you for spending so much time with me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, could you help us out? Give us a five-star review on your podcast app. Give us a thumbs up and share that video. Thank you for checking it out. And we'll be back really soon.